My name is Kent. I'm one of the pastors here, and one of my roles is to try to like equip people to become disciples. And one of the ways I love to do that is by teaching. And I particularly love the challenge of trying to teach a group of people who are sitting in a room filled with delicious smelling smells. So that might add one little complication to the presentation today. And the other one is this. If you try to track what I'm saying by following the outline that's in the bulletin, you will be completely lost because the sermon that came out bears no resemblance to the outline in your bulletin. So just want to warn you about that. It will be helpful, however, if you do open up your Bibles and read the passage with me and then maybe keep your Bibles open as we look at the passage together. And today we're going to look at Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. So we're in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, the second book, the sixth chapter. Some very familiar stories in the chapter uh, 6 of Mark. We're going to look at one that maybe many of you have heard before. Mark 6, starting with verse 30. Mark 6, 30. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Then, because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, Come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. By this time, it was late in the day, so his disciples came to Jesus and they said, this is a remote place and it's already very late. Send the people away so that they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But Jesus answered, You give them something to eat. They said to him, That would take more than a half year's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Go and see. And when they found, they said, Five and two fish. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass They sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and he broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up twelve basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. And the number of men who had eaten was 5,000. This is God's word, and it's true, and we can rely on it. I have a pond in my backyard. That is not my pond. (laughs) That is the picture that I have in my mind when I sit by my pond. I like to go back there in the morning, and it's peaceful and quiet and calm and listen to the birds sing, and I I love it when it's super calm and the water is super um, like a mirror. It's beautiful. And I imagine that I'm in beautiful places like Bear Lake, Colorado, or someplace in the mountains. 
So over the years that I've had a pond, I've noticed um, some universal, universal pond truths, I'm going to call them. And here's the first one. When you have a pond and a rock and a kid and you put them all together, the kid will always throw the rock into the pond. I've been watching this happen for years. And even with stern warnings, it's impossible for them to resist taking a pebble and throwing it into the water. And I don't know, maybe it's not just kids, but around my pond, it's usually kids who have trouble with that. Kid plus rock plus pond equals splash. Okay? That's the universal pond truth number one. And this is what universal pond truth number one looks like. When you throw a rock into a calm body of water, what do you get? You get ripples. And these are kind of fascinating. I think that's part of the reason why we like to throw stuff into water, because we like ripples, which leads to universal pond truth number two. You cannot stop a ripple. Once the ripples start going, you can sometimes deflect them, but you can't stop them. And here's a corollary to universal pond truth number two. You can't stop the ripples. They always go farther and last longer than expected. If you ever watch ripples in a pond, they keep going and they bounce off things and they bounce back and the ripples will actually go on a lot longer than you expect and they'll continue to ripple farther than you ever expected. We have a logo for our new series and it includes this circle. And when we were talking about this originally, I think in my mind I had the idea of a target. Like we were going to try to shoot at this target of transforming the corridor. But the more I've been thinking about it, the more I think that this actually reminds me of ripples. And that our target is actually to try to ripple in such a way that the corridor is transformed. And this is what we embarked on last week. And Jeremy got us started on a really great foot by asking the question, um, do you know Jesus? So we started to recognize immediately that the idea of transformation in the corridor is going to have something to do with Jesus. That's a great way for us to start this journey. And as I was thinking about that, um, I was thinking about the idea of making disciples who make disciples. We've said that's our vision as a church. It's actually a little bit longer than that. Our vision is to make disciples who make disciples so that every man, woman, and child in our community is exposed to Jesus daily in word and in deed. That's the whole vision. And Jeremy did an excellent job of calling us to the question of, so do you want to be a disciple, first of all? If you're not a disciple, would you like to be one? And then a follow-up question of, well, if you are a disciple, would you like to make a disciple? Would you like to be one? And um, we asked for a specific response, and we got some good response. I was excited about the response that we got from the tear-off sheets last week. But I think both of us and all of us who looked at that were a little bit surprised that it wasn't bigger. We're thinking, you know, we're all disciples. Shouldn't we all want to be disciples? And if we're all disciples, shouldn't we all want to make disciples? Isn't that part of what we do? So it raised some questions for me, and I started to wonder about why there was not a bigger response. And I started to listen to what people were saying about it. And what I heard was a question. And the question I heard was this. Well, what does it mean to make a disciple? 
Well, that's a great question. So I want to start with that today, and I'm actually going to draw you a little picture on paper, since I'm a great artist. Okay? Making disciples starts with Jesus. Okay? That's representing Jesus, because I couldn't draw a picture of Jesus. Moving in a relationship with Jesus where I'm getting closer to him, that's discipleship. That's my picture of discipleship. Okay, now, as soon as I put this picture up here, I recognize that there's a couple of universal truths about disciple-making, okay? Here's the first truth about disciple-making. Universal truth. It's complicated. I want to acknowledge that right up front. Making disciples is complicated because it involves eight beatitudes, nine fruits of the Spirit, a couple dozen spiritual gifts, countless spiritual practices, not to mention virtues that we develop, truths we understand, behaviors that we try to emulate. And this is done trying to cultivate proper attitudes and proper behaviors among people who are all at unique places living it out in unique situations every day. And as soon as I start thinking about it, I go, whoa, that's complicated. You're all at a different place in your journey with Christ and all wrestling with different things and all growing in different ways and all applying it in unique situations. As soon as I start thinking about this, I come to this conclusion Making disciples is complicated. There's not a cookie-cutter, assembly-line way to make disciples. I've often wished that there were, that we could take you and put you on a conveyor belt and move you through a system so that at the end we get to stamp out, there's a disciple. That would be way easier than what we're called to do. It'd be great if we could make it less complicated. But universal disciple-making truth number one is it's complicated. Universal disciple-making truth number two, it's really simple. Follow Jesus. That's it. Okay, now I have a picture that might help us as we're trying to discern how to do this. Jesus, if we're going to follow him, what we discover is that Jesus radiates love, and grace, and mercy, and compassion. That's like ripples that radiate out into the world. And those ripples of God's love and grace and compassion, I'm convinced, always ripple farther than I ever imagined, farther than expected. And they ripple a lot longer than I ever expect. So that if the world is going to be transformed, it's going to be transformed by the power of God's love in Jesus rippling out into the world. And then what it does as it ripples out is it begins to impact us so that now wherever I'm at on this journey, wherever I'm at, no matter how far or how close I might feel at any given moment, if I can just catch a little glimpse of this love of God rippling through Jesus, you know what I start to do? I start to ripple it out from wherever I'm at. And it might be in my workplace. 
It might be at, at home. It might be at my family reunion. It might be at school. And you know what? No matter where I'm at on this growth, the ripples always go farther than I expected. And they always last longer than expected. This is my picture of the power to transform the corridor. It starts with the love of Jesus, and then it goes to our love of our neighbor. So now I want to try to figure out what this might actually look like in a, in a particular situation by looking at Mark chapter 6 to see how this worked out in that particular situation. Oh, actually, I think I have a verse that goes with this first to help support it. I could have gone to a lot of different verses, but I'm looking at 1 John 3. How do we know what true love looks like? We look at Jesus. We know what love is because Jesus showed us what love is. And because he loved us and gave his life for us, then we start to love our neighbor. We start to ripple wherever we're at, okay? So keep that in mind while we're thinking about Mark chapter 6 now. So here's an example of where Jesus is out in his world and he is, I think, uh, living out or showing us how these universal disciple-making truths get played out in reality, okay? Focus verse, verse 34, Mark 6, verse 34. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. Just curious, I think we've got some farmers or former farmers here maybe. What do you call a group of sheep? You know what you call a flock or a herd. You can call them a herd. These are all legal terms when you're talking about groups of sheep. A flock or a herd or there's one more. Technical term for a group of sheep, a mob. Okay. Jesus lands and he sees a large mob and he has compassion on them because they are like sheep without a shepherd. So he began to teach them many things. Now this is set in the midst of an interesting time for Jesus and his disciples because they're exhausted. They had actually hoped to get a break. They have had so many people pressing in on them for so long, so many pressing needs, so many demands. They finally go, we're exhausted. We need to get away from this. And so Jesus, recognizing this, actually says to his little group of disciples, he says, yeah, come away with me. You're weary. Let's come away to a solitary place. Let's go find some solitude, some peace and quiet, and we're going to rest. And so they do, but the word gets out that they're going to this solitary place, and the people recognize them, and they can't stop themselves. They're a mob. So this mob of people gets there before Jesus gets there with his disciples. So as soon as Jesus lands the boat, there's a mob of people standing on the shoreline. And when Jesus sees them, he immediately has a compassion. He immediately jumps into action. He can't stop himself because he sees these people who are in need and they need Jesus. And so he's moved with compassion. One of the commentators I read on this particular verse was a guy named Douglas Hall, and he wanted to point out the meaning of compassion and the way it's used in this particular passage, he says it's a lot more than mere pity. Pity, he says, is something that you can manage from afar. 
You can have pity from a distance. He describes watching television and you see starving children or abused pets and you have a little bit of pity on them so you send a check to support them in their plight. That's pity. This passage is talking about something a lot more. It's talking about compassion which you can't do from a distance. Compassion involves suffering with somebody. You have to come close to them. You have to be near to the one who's hurting in order to have compassion. The precondition for compassion is to stand with those who are hurting. That's what compassion means. Now, I received a timely phone call last night from somebody who reminded me how much I still need to grow in compassion. This caller gently explained to me the pain that comes when somebody is hurting and nobody shows up. And as I was listening to this explanation, it's breaking my heart. And I'm recognizing I have to stand in front of all of you today and talk about compassion, and I often lack compassion because I try to care from a distance. Compassion does not work from a distance. Compassion has to come close. And that's what she was saying to me in this phone call, and she was right. Her words reminded me of a conversation that I had recently on a visit to see my counselor who was helping me deal with some grief. And at one point as I was talking with this counselor, we started to talk about strategies for dealing with pain and suffering. How do you handle it when you're constantly bombarded with difficult things, painful experiences, grief and hurt? How do you handle that is what I was asking him. And I shared with him my deep appreciation for people who love me a lot and when I start to complain or whine about my pain, they just listen to me. And they don't try to fix it. They don't try to solve it. They listen and they try to understand where I'm coming from. And when I said that, I appreciate these people who understand me when I'm hurting. This made the counselor launch into a little bit of riff about the meaning of the word understanding, which I thought I understood, but apparently not. So he said, understanding literally means to stand under as though somebody is holding a great burden or bearing a great weight and it's too much for them to take and they feel like they're going to be crushed by this burden, somebody with understanding comes underneath the burden and stands there with you to help you hold it. That's understanding. That's the kind of compassion that Jesus is talking about in Mark 6. He sees this mob of sheep who are harassed and helpless without a shepherd, and he says, I need to go stand with them. And he begins to care for them. Now the next part of this verse really surprised me, because after he sees these harassed and helpless sheep, and he needs to go show them compassion, the next thing it says is, so he began to teach them many things. That is not what I expected it to say. When I'm reading through this, I'm thinking, well, he's filled with compassion, so he should go care for them, he should go hold their hand, he should go heal them, he should go help them. He should do something like that. That's compassion, right? But Mark tells us, so he began to teach them many things, which immediately makes me curious, what are the kind of things you teach to harassed and helpless sheep? If you've got a mob of sheep who are hurting, what do you teach them? Well, it doesn't really tell us. Of course, we can go read through the Gospels and we see there's many situations when Jesus was filled with compassion and taught them things. 
But the thing that I thought was really interesting was the way he taught his disciples, his inner circle, people who we might have thought were closer to Jesus than the mob, his 12. They're there, and they're watching Jesus teach, and then something really interesting happens. After Jesus has taught them for quite a while, it gets to be late in the day, and his disciples come to him, and they're really concerned. They're, like, worried. They've been, like, watching this whole situation unfold, and they're, like, taking stock. Look, there's a whole bunch of people, 5,000 men, which means there's probably at least 10, 15,000 people there if you count women and children. There's a huge mob of people. And they're like, we're a long way. The closest McDonald's is like way over there. And by the way, we don't have any funds to like send them there. So we should just, basically they come to Jesus and they say, get rid of the mob. That's what they say to Jesus. Get rid of them. We can't handle this anymore. And remember, they're already weary. They're already exhausted and worn out. They were just hoping for a little break, a little time out. I think that might have motivated their thinking too. So he says, they say to Jesus, this is a remote place and it's already very late. So send the people away so that they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy them something to eat. But Jesus says to them, you give them something to eat, which is classic, isn't it? This is Jesus teaching them. This is Jesus discipling them. He's making them into disciples. Because even though they may be the inner circle, they maybe have progressed up this line closer and closer to Jesus, there's a bunch of stuff they still don't get. They don't get compassion. And they come right back. They push back on Jesus right away. They go, well, that'd take more than half a year's wages. There's no way we can afford to do this. So Jesus says, well, take stock, take inventory, go count how many loaves we have. So they go and they see five loaves and two fish. And I imagine the disciples are so nervous at this point because they have no idea how to handle this type of deal. But Jesus says, here's what you can do. Take this mob of sheep, tell them to sit down in little groups, 50, 100 sitting in the grass. I even imagine that as they're sitting there, they're dressed in their little thing, and there's this huge 15,000 people spread around the hillside. It probably looks like a flock of sheep or a mob of sheep. And I'll pray for these little loaves, and I'll pray for these little fish, and then you guys, you, you feed them. Do exactly what Jesus asked you to do. Go give them something to eat. And they do. And even though they feel helpless in this impossible situation... My favorite sentence in the whole thing, verse 42, they all ate and were satisfied. Isn't that a great sentence? They didn't just get a little, like, taste, like, okay, you can all lick the fish. They ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up what was left over, and there were 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of fish and bread. When I think about transforming the corridor, one of my first questions is, well, what can we do about this? Really. It seems like it's just way too much. It's way too big a thing. What can we do about this? And now I'm hearing Jesus say, give them something to eat. What can we do about this? Feed them till they're satisfied. What can we do about this? Trust Jesus to do the impossible. What can we do about this? 
show them a little compassion. Love them and see where those ripples go. This is our identity as disciples. We're on this pathway moving closer and closer toward Jesus and trying to figure out how to love where we're at. To love with the love that has been given to us and then watch those ripples go out. And I'm convinced they're always going to go farther than we expect. And the impact of those ripples is going to last longer than we expect. So a couple weeks ago, we started asking you to think specifically about places where you go, where you'd like to see transformation, and that's got me thinking about my places, and I've mentioned several. One of my places is my own family. And so last Sunday, I decided I needed to do something as part of that, and um, my oldest daughter, Kelsey, just moved to Lafayette, Indiana. And so last Sunday, I pulled a trailer with all of her earthly possessions in a single trailer, and I went to Lafayette, and it turned out to be about a six, six and a half hour drive because it was pulling hard and I had to stop for gas four times. And by the time I was getting close there, I was feeling weary. It had been a long day and I was tired. And I was a little anxious about meeting the, her new friends. She had some new friends there and they all agreed to meet and help us unload. I was concerned about that and... I was starting to feel actually annoyed about the idea of having to interact with a bunch of these people who I'd actually never met before. And I was starting to think of a way I could, like, ditch the stuff and run. I thought I was hearing Jesus say, come away with me to a solitary place. You're weary. And then I remembered this vision about transformation in the places where we're put. And I actually was thinking about Jeremy's sermon and his... uh, picture of Jesus being with us everywhere we go, thinking Jesus is in Lafayette, Indiana too. And then the, the, the program Truth for Life came on the radio. I don't know if any of you have ever listened to that. It's a guy named Alistair Begg. And he started to preach, and the sermon that he was preaching was entitled, I'm not making this up, this is a sermon, You Give Them Something to Eat. That was the name of the sermon. And he started preaching through Mark 6. And the final application of this sermon came just as I was getting to the city limits of Lafayette. And here was the application. Here was the last application he said. We should pray, Father, teach me to love with a heart of compassion like Jesus loved. And when I heard that, I thought, God, this isn't even fair. You're putting all this stuff on me. He said, when you're tempted to say, Jesus, send them away, When you're tempted to think, this is impossible, when you're tempted to think, I'm too weary or too annoyed, then pray, Father, teach me to love with a heart of compassion. Teach me to love with the same love that Jesus loved with. So I prayed the prayer. And... God helped me love this mob of people who were waiting at my daughter's new house. And I actually think I did pretty good. And at this moment, I have no idea what God is going to do with that. But I'm pretty sure there were some ripples that were started.
So now it's your turn. And what I want you to do now is I want you to think about the places you go and the kind of ripples that you can make there. And I am looking at the clock and I recognize we're running really late, so I'm going to amend my exercise for you. Um, I'm wearing a shirt with code words on it, and there's maybe some of you here in the room who can identify the code words on my shirt. It says AFP Claims. Anybody here know what that stands for? Okay, we don't have any Transamerica people here right now. It was what they used to call the department where my wife works. And because my wife is part of this department, I've gotten to be part of this department, and so I've done things like go to her boss's house for barbecue and meet people after work at... Cedar Ridge for drinks and celebrate birthday parties and help people move their stuff Um, because that's a community that um, we're called, Mary's called and because she's called to it, I'm called to it, okay? There's four, I think, basic places where we can be called. Our family, family reunions, our own kids, our workplace, the place where we go every day or our school where we go every day. Um, a place that's like our third space, like hobbies, like places we go to do things for fun, things where we just hang out. And then I think there's those kind of everyday places where we gather, where we do routine, we run errands, we run into people, we see people like that. I want you to imagine right now, right where you're sitting, where is the place where you feel like God is most calling you to, like, ripple? Your home, workplace, or school, your hobbies, your extracurricular activities, or maybe one of those everyday errand kind of places where you go every day, okay? I was going to have to actually have you move and chat with people about this for a minute, but I'm just going to, if you're willing to just take a shortcut, tell your neighbor what place you're thinking of, the place where you feel is a priority right now for you to ripple. One of those four, home, school, work, uh, hobby, recreational, or your everyday errand kind of place, Okay? To tell your neighbor, priority. What's your? Where's your priority? Okay, some of you were sitting by yourselves and did not tell anyone. So your assignment is you have to tell me on your way out of the room. We're not going to let you off the hook uh, off of this. Okay. Uh, next week we'd like to invite everybody. We wore some shirts. Some of us today as examples. We'd like everyone to wear some kind of apparel that you think is a representative of that place. Okay whether it's your work, your home, a hobby, something like that, the places where you're going to ripple. Next week, we're going to actually do a little more with this and get a chance to talk. And we're going to actually invite you to come back. It's going to be great. We're going to start to talk about the kind of transformation you want to see. I think this is where it really gets excited. Think about the people and places that we want to see transformed, but there's a, a great biblical vision for the kind of transformation we could see in these places. Come back next week, and we'll hear more about that. But let me pray for us. Lord God, thank you for this day. Thank you for these good people and their willingness to follow you. And God, um, I pray that you'll continue to guide us by your spirit. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.